0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John 1. We're going to be in John 1. We're also going to be in Hebrews 4. If you want to use the fancy bookmark that comes in some of the Bibles that we have, that's also going to be a passage that we jump in and jump out of. I feel like Charlie did a really good job of leading us just then in some of those passages and the big idea for today. Because last week we started walking through what we call Advent season. Advent just meaning arrival. It just means coming. That's all the word means. And what we saw last week is that God operates in a time, basically what Paul would call the fullness of time. So when time was pregnant and ready to activate and do what God had already designed and what God had already saw fit, he would move, right? That's what we saw last week. When the moment God perfectly designed arrived, God also arrived. He did so in a manger and he will do so once again in the end of all ends. The question I wanna look at today is how? How does he arrive? What I mean is in what shape, in what form does Jesus come to us? And probably the bigger question, why do we care, honestly? I mean, how do we separate the truth of God with flesh on from just a chapter out of a systematic theology book into our normal, everyday lives that we live with our normal, everyday problems? Because if we can't answer that question, then a sermon like this, it might entertain, it might teach you, but to what end, right? And that's what we want to look at because, as I said last week, my hope is always to show you that Jesus is the biggest answer to all of your biggest questions. He's the ultimate answer to all of our ultimate questions. So let's look at what the Word of God says today about God becoming flesh for you and for me. John 1, verse 14, this is going to be our chief passage that's going to do most of the heavy lifting It says, and the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you remember, pause, if you remember when we went through the book of Exodus, we saw that that, the word that renders dwelt is where we got the same word tabernacle, that God tabernacled with us. He came and put on a tent, a tent of skin to sojourn with us for a time. So, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a pivotal passage. It's actually not very long, but it holds a lot. And it tells you and me that God came to us in context, in flesh, in a way that made sense, in a way that we would understand. He would come and he would be full man among mankind. This is super cool. The fact that God would do something like this is very thoughtful and very cool. It's very mysterious which we're going to see, and it's also very necessary, as we're going to see. Necessary meaning that you, if you are a Christian here today, or if you're watching and you are a Christian, you could not be a Christian unless God was also, in the person of Jesus, 100% fully human. You couldn't. It breaks the gospel in half. If it was 100% God and 90% man, it breaks the gospel. So it's necessary. And if you want to grow as a disciple, meaning if you want to change, If you really want to change, his full humanity is going to lead us very well, right? I'm talking about the incarnation, right? The manger scene, how God came in the form of a child. And it's important to know that when Jesus cried into the night from the manger in Bethlehem, he cried human tears through human tear ducts. He felt pain. Through human pain receptors, he would metabolize food just like you. You had a brain stem, eyelashes, just like you, just like me. He was human, just as human as you are today. Let us sink in just for a moment. Just as human as you are today. And yet, he is total and complete deity at the same time. Approachable and unapproachable, all at the same time. This is how Paul tells the church of Colossae in Colossians 2. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's just telling us how God came, how he advented. Now, why would God do this? Why? I mean, why, why would an uncontainable God be very glad to be contained into an imperfect body? It's, it's worth asking. I mean, it's one thing for God to be mindful of us, as David would say, and I think it's like the 8th or the ninth Psalm, where he said, who is man that you would be mindful of him? It's one thing for him to be thoughtful for us and mindful for us, but to become one of us, very different matter. Very different. And it's mysterious, and it's confusing for a lot of people. It's, it, it can be really confusing. I mean, I'm full of questions when I look at God coming to us as man. Like, what was Jesus like as a teenage boy? You ever think about that? a teenage boy. I've known teenage boys. I've had a teenage boy. What was Christ like when he was one? How, how does one know everything and still yet learn? How does one hold the whole cosmos together just with the authority of his word and yet sleep? The, I, I mean, I'm full of questions. I don't have a lot of answers. Some of my answers are very thin. Some are just guesses, to be honest with you. Some of the best experts we have, the deepest theologians we have in human history have done nothing more than just speculate on some of these things. We don't have answers to all of these questions, but the questions that really matter are answered clearly for us. God discloses himself to us in the word of God, telling us what he wants us to know about him. And this is one of the things that we pick up in his self-disclosure that a limitless Jesus, a limitless Jesus experienced all of humanity. All of it, our boring, normal, usual, ordinary humanity. He grew hair, he grew muscle, and when he was in puberty, he got a deeper voice. His body experienced catabolic processes. He probably had four to five REM cycles every night. He had a gut biome, had eye color probably had tan lines from working hard every day, probably had a certain food that he preferred, a certain song that made him light up a little bit more, probably had some favorite memories, maybe had a favorite joke, right? He'd clock out at the end of a hard day and sleep a hard night. I mean, that might not be so hard to imagine. You know what might be a little harder to imagine? As we talk about him being fully man, it's the full range of human emotions that he had. He had a full range. Now, we looked at this when we went through the Psalms. We went through like maybe 10 or 12 Psalms, and we'll do it again probably next year. We'll go through another different 10 or 12 Psalms because it's helpful, and maybe after a few years, we'll finish the whole book, right? Um, But what we looked at in the Psalms is that it is dripping with emotion, and God is an emotional God, but what makes his emotions unique from ours is that his does not have sin that is commingled throughout it all. It is a pure, depth of emotion. He has deep emotions. find that fascinating. He sobbed. He belly laughed. He would sense danger. He would feel excitement. He would have withering sadnesses from time to time, for some of you who are the same. He would even experience anger. Consider that. Sounds like I'm just describing a guy, just a guy. But he was so much more than a guy, so much more And this is why Jesus' humanity is so hard for us to connect to. He's just a guy. And yet, he had no sin. He was God, verily God. He was God himself in the flesh, as it says in John, full of grace, full of truth, the very glory of God, unapproachable, yet becoming approachable to lead blind rebels towards life. It's beautiful, really. And there's some importance in the theology of this because this theology is attacked often. It's been historically attacked. Historically, men have always tried to strip the humanity away from God. We still do it today. Nothing's really changed. But God did not lose his godness when he arrived. What I mean by that is he didn't transform from God into man. He didn't transform from God um, into something a little bit less than God. Gregory Nancy Anson from the 300s, he's an old church father. He said this. This is very old. He says, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. So when the fullness of time came, and the manger is empty, doesn't have a child in it, but it's about to, Jesus took human nature into union with his own distinct person, which was eternal. Jesus existed before the manger scene. He didn't start at the manger. He had already existed before. But in that moment, the fullness of time, he took human nature onto himself. He added humanity, in other words. He assumed it. He brought it to himself, never ceasing to be God. He became, however, what he was not before Now, if you're a nerd and you want to read about this in books that are this big, right, this is what they call the hypostatic union. I don't expect anyone to remember that. I'm not going to quiz you later on. But it's important to know that Jesus always had divine nature, always, and he assumed humanity, even temptation, even temptation onto his own person. It's hard for us to imagine because we Right? We see ourselves as humans. We know humans. In fact, we see humans only through one lens, and is that, that we're full of mistakes. That's why whenever you make a mistake, you say, Hey, hey, hey I'm only human, man. I'm only human. That's what we say, because that's what we think. So how is it that Jesus is a human, a full human? The truth is, is we want him to be a little bit more God than we want him to be man, if we're honest. Because it makes us feel more confident in him when he is less like us. Because we're only human. But if you remove the humanity from Jesus, you destroy the gospel message. It's his humanity that is just as significant for your salvation as his deity. The fact that he is fully man is just as important for your gospel transformation as the fact that he is fully God. You have to think of it that way. We needed one that was fully man and fully God to reconcile both parties together. There's no other way for this to work. His humanity is actually what made it possible for him to be our substitute. Our substitute. Colossians 1.19 It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So peace is made peace is made between God and the ones who throw rocks at him. And is made by one who is both man and God fully. This is what's happening on the cross, right? Man's sin would require payment by man. God's judgment would be taken by God himself. So what this means for us is that the gospel becomes an unbreakable story. An unbreakable one about an unapproachable God becoming approachable, coming to experience and live among us as one of us, to die among us, to make peace with us by his own blood. And he's doing so as our only possible substitute. I find this to be so thoughtful, so incredibly, as David says, mindful of us. And the the good news gets better. The gospel turns into a, a really robust story when you look at the fact that it's not just about one advent. He will advent again. He will arrive. He will come again in the second advent, which will be the end of all ends. Jesus is going to return with his humanity just as much as it was experienced when his disciples walked around him. When we see him, he will look just as physical, just as distinct, just as personal as when Peter saw him. That's hard to wrap your mind around. This is what the angels told the disciples in Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, and mind you, Jesus is like levitating up to the clouds, right? I mean, he's leaving them. He's going up into the clouds, and they're all just kind of doing this, which we would too, right? Not a lot of talking. We're all just looking, and the angels say, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which is a real funny question. Who has to ask that, right? Notice they don't answer. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is super cool. This is cool. Jesus doesn't just shed his humanity and just drop his skin like some garment whenever he enters the clouds. Right now, right as these words are leaving my lips, as sure as you were sitting there right now, Jesus is presiding at the right hand of the Father, and he is full of bone and flesh and tissue and creative energy and deep emotion. Right now he is. He remains fully God and fully man. He has a glorified human body, and he will return personally and visibly on the last day. Okay, so I just dropped a bunch of theology on you, and I didn't even ask you if it was okay first, right? That's what we call Christology, which we've said in the past, it's just the theology of the person of Jesus. But I'm gonna go back to the earlier question that I started off with, why do we care? I mean, it's interesting, I'm interested. But in our normal days, how important is it, I mean, really, how important is it that Jesus was fully man? And we're gonna see two things. They're going to help you grow as a disciple. One is he gets us, because he's not just a substitute. He's also a representative. He gets us. He gets you. And then secondly, he shows you a way forward as a model. And this is why it's important. Look at Hebrews 4.15 if you have a Bible with you. If not, we'll put it up on the screen. And it is the author of Hebrews. We're not quite sure who the author is. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Translation, he gets it. He gets it. Sympathetically, he gets it. I mean, we don't think he gets it, though. We don't think he is sympathetic. This is what we do in our head. We're caught in our sin. We're caught in some pervasive pattern habit we can't put down. And we, we think God is looking at us with his hands on his waist, kind of just unimpressed, looking on, saying, oh my gosh, what on earth is even going through your head? Like, forget the fact that you did that or said that, How could you even think that again and again and again? What is wrong with you? I don't even know what to think. That's how we imagine him. Listen, he knows why. He knows why that entered into your mind. He knows why it came out of your mouth. He knows why you think the way that you think. He knows. He knows why your sin will lean you in some directions and not others. Have you ever seen somebody else and you thought, man, that's weird. That's a kind of a weird sin that they have. I mean, I, I don't struggle with that. Have you ever thought that? I knew a guy once that lost so much money from sports gambling. I'm like, sports gambling? Of all things? I just couldn't fashion it. In my mind, I could see blowing my money in a lot of different ways. I really can. I could see myself really ruining my family's fortune or whatever, but sports boards gambling you can't just watch the game i couldn't imagine that and i couldn't imagine what would lean a guy in that direction god knows why what happened to us our genetics our culture he knows everything that makes us lean he knows why you lean in the directions that you lean when it comes to sin he gets it he's sympathetic to it it's because he understands the pull of the world the allure of self-trust He gets it. He was tempted this way. He was tempted to hope for an escape from all responsibility. The attractiveness of power was tempting to him. Wanting to be liked was a temptation to him. Wanting to be secure and safe was a temptation for him. How do we know this? The Bible said so. The Bible says so. So yeah, he understands. He understands why you do what you do. Friends, you don't even know why you do what you do. He gets us better than we get ourselves. That's what I'm trying to get across. And this matters when we interact with a God like that. He's not some disconnected spectator with no compassion. He's not just a passenger just watching you screw up, curious to why you're doing the things that you're doing. He gets it, he understands. God experienced humanity. We are not alone, we are held together by one with deep sympathy. But listen, I'm going to answer a question that a lot of you guys are asking in your head. Maybe not say out loud. We talked about this in our men's Bible study just this last week on Thursday. Did Jesus really experience temptation if he didn't sin? It's not a bad question, right? Did he really taste temptation the way you do if he was bulletproof? The answer is this is that temptation, it amplifies over time. It grows, it increases over time. If I held a heavy weight up here for two seconds and it was just too heavy for me to hold and I put it down, I did not suffer long under the burden of that weight. I gave into it quickly. I put it down. I didn't really suffer at all. Had I held onto it for two days instead of two minutes, I would have suffered under that burden longer. I would have more fully understood the weight of that burden because of the time that I held it. And Jesus suffered temptation all the way to the end without dropping the weight. That's one way to look at it. He suffered all the way to the cross, suffered to death. C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly in his book, Mere Christianity. And by the way, if you're a guest, we're giving that book away out there in the foyer. If you're a part of Legacy, you can have it too. It just costs you 150 bucks. No, I'm totally playing. But he says this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Ah, so true. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it and Christ, Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows the full what temptation means. Very helpful for me when I look at whether or not Jesus really understands what we're going through. When you suffer temptation, you have one who gets it. He's sympathetic. He has felt the furthest reaches of temptation further than you have. You are not alone. It should help you to know that that's who you're praying to when you're in the midst of temptation. That's who you were talking to. He gets it. He gets it. And he not only understands, but he models something better. That's the second big truth I think it's going to help us today. He models something better. He shows us what humanity can look like. Listen, we need this as humanity. As humanity, we need that. We need someone to model for us. I mean, we're in a day and age where we're grasping over pronouns, mass murder by cars, We never tell our impulses no. We never tell our flesh no. Humanity doesn't do a very good job of being human very often. It's good to have a model. It's good to have somebody, something, show us a way forward. I know what I'm capable of as a husband and as a dad and as a pastor, as a friend. I know the potential. I know the capability I have by observing others. I can read books to teach me how to be a better dad and a better husband and a better pastor, and I do. But without a model, I can't really see it. But when you see it with your own eyes, you're able to say, that's my mark. That's my mark. How do I get from A to B? How did they get from A to B? How did they become who they are doing what they are doing? How does that work? It's why we would rather sit with people that we want to be like, rather than read books that tell us how to be like them. Right? It's, it's why mentors are such a deep treasure to all of us. If you've ever had a good one, you know how valuable it is to sit at the feet of someone that is that much further away from us, that inspires and illustrates very key things that the Bible already says. It's one of the aspects of community that builds us up quickly. The fact that we can inspire each other horizontally, the fact that we can illustrate things that the Bible already tells us plainly, but so that the eye can see it. I'm simply more courageous now because of some of you in this room. I'm more compassionate today because some of you in this room. I'm much more thankful because some of you in this room have shown me what it looks like to be thankful. You model it. I see it, and I grow from it. You show me the way. So you see, it's some consolation for us to be understood by Jesus, but we do need a way forward too. It's, it's not just good enough to be understood we need a way full we have to see a way and he models this but here's the key and the kicker he models it as a full man it's his humanity that models it we think Jesus had some level of a cheat code um, to the impossible to do the impossible it's why we find it difficult to connect to his humanity right if Jesus was able to just kind of weave through and push past all the temptation without the spirit of God then we have no model because he's God Of course, he's not going to be tempted. But Jesus overcame temptation as a full man by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's super important for us. Luke 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So the Holy Spirit drove him into temptation. And the Holy Spirit carried him through temptation. He did all of this with the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. You have the same Spirit. You've got the same Spirit alive in you. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit in you. John 16 This is what Jesus says before he leaves. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Send him to you. It's better for you. It's better for you to overcome temptation and sin because of the Holy Spirit than if Christ lived in your house with you and walked around with you for most of the day. The Holy Spirit's more helpful. That's why he's saying it's good that I go. And then in Romans, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Listen, this is not the most red and green and jingle belly sermon in the world. I get that. I know we're in Advent, and I know when you see a manger scene at the mall, you don't really think about overcoming temptations. I wouldn't blame you for that. We don't think about that. But Jesus advented. He came to live among us, to die, to give us a gift, a Christmas gift of sorts, of the Holy Spirit. Until when? Until he advents again. Until he comes and arrives again. In this middle time though, the time between advents that we live, when a temptation comes your way, two things you could take to the bank. You are not unique and alone, because you have one that understands. And you are not powerless, because you have the Spirit of God. Those are two things you could take. Every day. So let me ask you the question What is tempting you to sin against God that is stronger than the grip death had over Christ when he was in the tomb? What's stronger? Because God's spirit beat death. It could beat porn, it could beat a greedy nature, it could beat a toxic anxiety, it could defeat unforgiveness, bitterness. You're not powerless. You're no victim to addictions, not even for a minute. You have all you need to grow and change. All you need, you have the perfect substitute. You have a sympathetic representative, a priest who understands, you have a model going before you and he's given you the Holy Spirit. There is nothing, I mean nothing, you cannot overcome. There is nothing. I mean there's absolutely nothing that you cannot overcome. Where is it that you catch yourself saying, I guess I just have to live with this temptation for the rest of my life? What does that mean? Am I just going to keep giving in to this sin? Maybe it's, maybe it's not just a temptation. Maybe it's a temptation that is giving birth to sin, which will, when it grows old, as James says, become death. All right? Where is that for you? Where has that been a deep struggle for you? Now, here is the truth. Some of us will carry temptations all the way to the grave. There are some temptations that you have that by nature of your Christian growth will stop being tempting. They won't have the hooks in you that they used to have. For a lot of people, though, and for a lot of temptations, you might carry it all the way to the grave. You might. You should pray for your sisters and brothers in Christ who battle through same-sex attraction. Consider them for a moment carrying an attraction, just just the way that they feel bent towards one sex over another. Does does that just go away? Maybe it does for some people, maybe it doesn't for others. But that's a temptation that they carry with them. It should give you some sensitivity towards something like that. Some go away, some we carry. But even the ones we carry, just between you and me, that's just more opportunity for God to show his glory in us as we say no to the very things that are cravings and hungers within us that we just feel like we can't live without. God has made much of. And in that place where God is most glorified in us putting down our temptations, in that place where God is most glorified, we find the deepest amount of joy, the deepest amount of content, satisfaction. So listen, God is so close that he understands you, but he is not so close that he cannot rescue you. So we can feel free to carry our temptations to Jesus. Not just your sins. We're used to that, right? We preach it from the pulpit. When you sin, like we said last week, take your broken toy, take it to the father who loves to fix broken things and say, here, I broke this. I'm really sorry. Can you fix it? For sure, also carry your temptations. Lord, this is raging in me. I've not sinned. I've not sinned in this. Man, I want to. I don't know how much longer I can make it with this inside of me. I mean, I mean, Lord, I've not sinned, I've not done anything wrong, but man, there is a craving in me, there's an itch, I cannot scratch it. I need you to help me. You know you can pray like that. And you know he understands because he's sympathetic. Easy to easy to pray to. God can give you power to overcome temptations. So let me just drill it down into some quick, quick application before we finish. And I want to just talk about how we are as community for a moment. Where is it that you're hiding your temptations from community? Those who you are tight with. This would be a great place for me to insert the line, you should be in a DNA group. Because You're not really going to take your sins, your deepest struggles and temptations, and throw them out on the coffee table for five couples around you and kids running through and everything. That's not really going to happen. We all know that. But when it's just you and one or two others, are you putting a shroud around even the things that tempt you? Or are you making it their business as much as yours? So you think you're alone and you think that no one understands you. You couldn't be more wrong. Your temptations are so boringly normal and predictable, even Jesus himself was tempted in those ways. You're not alone. And then, conversely, if we can flip the coin a little bit, when others bring their temptations and they confess their need, are you sympathetic? Are you Christ shaped in that moment? This is what it takes to build a gospel-formed community, a gospel-shaped community whenever we are sympathetic with others who are tempted and sin the way that Jesus is sympathetic to us. And when we are able to feel free to show others our temptations and our struggles and our needs because we're not demanding their acceptance of us because we are so content in the fact that God loves us. I don't need them to think that I'm impressive because God loves me and he likes me because of Jesus. So I'm free to just tell you how it is. This is how gospel form communities are built. And listen, if you're watching or if you're here and you are not sure about this whole Jesus thing, you have questions, I wanna just direct your attention back to Colossians 1. And just feel free to kick open a nap or something when you get home and read through Colossians 1. It won't take you but just a minute. Jesus, in this moment, holds the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity at the same time. At the same time, it's beautiful. And he makes peace by his own blood. And he doesn't just make peace, he makes you family. He doesn't just make you safe. He brings you close and makes you friends. So I would submit to you, I would... I would submit that you follow, that you trust a God like this, a God who would rise from the dead and make a way for you, a true priest who intercedes. And hear me, he knows your name. He knows why you do what you do. He knows what's going on underneath the hood. He understands why you lean in that direction. He gets your deepest hungers. What you really want, this is what you really want. In some way, it can only be met in Jesus, all right? Everything. Your cravings. You have cravings that are underneath your cravings. You have hungers that are underneath your hungers. We never really look at those. We never really look at what's underneath the surface. But let's say you're addicted to sex or that is some chief pinnacle desire that you have. That is a craving. There's a craving that holds it up, though. The craving underneath that is just the one for extreme union and love. It's relationship. What you're really looking for isn't sex at all. It's this thing that God has put in you that can only be met and satisfied in him. Same thing with us looking at social media 90 times in an hour. What are we really looking for? What are we really looking for when we're scanning for comments or likes or shares? It's identity. It's to be valued for who you are, for who you are. Of course, in social media world, we don't really think that we are valuable as we are. So we project ourselves to be somebody else so that others will What? like us. Did you know that that can only be met, that can only be satisfied at its fullest pinnacle in Christ alone, who loves you and likes you just as you are, just as you are. The anxiety that we give into, that we feed, it's this longing to have a place of belonging that is far from danger. That's really the craving that you have, and yet that can only be met in Christ himself. Money, hoarding it as fast as we can, The craving underneath that is just to escape the poverty of the soul. All of these cravings, these hungers, are most fully satisfied in Christ himself. He is better, he is enough. He is enough. You know, one day Jesus is gonna return the same way you left, a physical man. A physical man, full deity and a physical man. And he's gonna lead an army to overcome the enemy and he will pronounce justice and truth and beauty from the back of his war horse. With a glorified church behind him, and he's gonna have scars in his hands and his feet, and those scars will be trophies of his love for you. Evidence that he experienced, not just a little bit of humanity, but the depth of humanity. This is our great priest, our great friend, our king, our great conquering hero, our Jesus. And in that moment, we will all bow and worship and laugh and sing with a joy that we've never felt before. And that joy will swell bigger and bigger every millisecond for eternity. Never to feel bored again, lonely again, misunderstood. Never to be tempted again. Consider that. That's what's waiting That's the second advent. Until then, we have his spirit alive in us as we do community together. Until then, that's what he's given us in his wisdom, submitting our deepest hungers to him as he sympathetically rescues us, being open with each other as we grow together as a church. Amen.